Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I'm joined, as ever, by my beautiful co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I am a podcaster uh, today of all days. I'm, a, I'm going to be a bit interesting this week because um, <laughs> I, I've been shooting the second film uh, for much of the week, and I'm going to be shooting for much of next week... And, um, oh, what was that beep? Was your bur- Is your burrito ready? It was my uh, projector turning off. Ah. <laughs> I, was, I was watching uh, Enter the Spider-Verse over supper before we recorded. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so, yes, but this week, forget the fact that I'm shooting my second film because we're here to talk about Burnt Offerings, my choice uh, of the fortnight. Dan, what is Burnt Offerings about? Right, so uh, Burnt Offerings uh, is a movie in which Oliver Reed and his wife Karen Black uh, rent a summer house with their child from a decidedly ominous um, sibling couple. It's a, a situation that is too good to be true, both financially and aesthetically, uh, which turns out to be very much the case, as is often the uh, the situation with things that are too that seem too good to be true. And uh, maybe something is something more of them is required than just the upkeep of the house and the surprisingly low cost of renting the place over the summer. Yes, that's a good uh, that's a good setup. In fact, that's a better setup than what we actually get in the film. Now, I love this film. Um, however, watching it with uh, you and uh, your wife Jen Handoff, Uber producer, you are both a little bit thrown off by the opening because it, it was you weren't quite sure what they were doing basically whether well, they were yeah, renting a house or buying a house or well that's it. even having seen it before it, it's distinctly unclear as to the situation it very much feels like they're buying a house sight unseen at the beginning and i'd completely forgotten about the fact that it was always meant to be a temporary arrangement like mm. even at the beginning of the film it's understood well it's not understood it's meant to be understood that these like creepy sibling caretakers are going to be uh, are going to be coming back to the house that it's going to revert to their ownership after the summer and that's not really made clear until we find out about the irremovable matriarch in the attic yeah, absolutely. And uh, here's where the beautiful, lovely Arrow Video uh, Blu-ray extras come in, um, because I too was thrown when I first saw it. I know it wasn't a first watch for you, but yeah, I, it, it's an odd entry point into the movie. Um, and it's actually revealed in the commentary, which is the first time I've heard this, is that the first 15 minutes were actually cut. So they originally talked about coming to the house. And, and yeah, so that, that, that completely... Um, it explains why it's a tiny bit confusing, um, but in quite a fun way, in a sort of Kubrickian way, I think, where you're sort of unnerved from the start because you're not quite sure where you are. I, I think I'm glad they cut that first 15 minutes. Yeah, I mean, obviously, without having seen it, um, it's hard to judge, but I think you're right, and it, it provides for a slightly peculiar in media res opening, yeah. because although it's not like a big action moment, the uh, the soundtrack doesn't know that. So the film is dripping with portents right from the get-go. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if they'd already scored it when they decided to chuck the first 15 minutes out, because, uh, again, that would make sense, because you're right, it really does really it is quite intense musically um really early on um and there's a lot of intense scenes in this film aren't there dan what are some of your favorites 
Oliver Reed absolutely losing his shit in a swimming pool. Yeah, I mean, that, that's mine too. <laughs> I mean, when we, again, uh, dear sweet precious Arrowheads, we watched this one together, uh, Dan and I, obviously, because I just talked about that. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm so, my brain is so gone. But the reason I'm saying that, again, is because uh, Dan and I were actually joking about the boy dying on set. Uh, while watching this swimming pool sequence, it uh, it really does feel like someone's <laughs> life was at risk during this scene. Yeah, I, I get the feeling that I mean, this was this was sort of like early peak or mid peak uh, read. I think yeah. like he he hadn't he hadn't gone off the tracks quite at this point, but he is unbelievably intense for the entire film. He is uh, yeah peak read intensity. Completely, and I, I mentioned Kubrick before, and um, there's a few moments in Burnt Offerings that feel like The Shining, and that swimming pool sequence is definitely one of them. That, oh, that, yeah. that father-son relationship and that sense of genuine danger and genuine tension and you know the way Oliver Reed feels possessed in a similar way to, to Jack Nicholson. There, there are definitely sort of crossovers between Burnt well, Offerings and The Shining. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned The Shining because uh, one of King's complaints about The Shining is often that Nicholson is kind of up to ten crazy right from the start. <laughs> That's true, and, yeah. And, and that there isn't really anywhere for him to go. Yeah. And, and while I don't feel it's necessarily to the detriment of Burnt Offerings, even at the beginning when Reed is being quite affectionate, there's this kind of like oh my God, you'll fucking crush me like a cross between Lenny from Of Mice and Men and Boris Johnson at any given moment. Like, he's a he's a dangerous and unpredictable character, even when he's being quite friendly. Yeah, there's that sort of weird scene in the graveyard that feels, um, yeah, very creepy in a, in a way that probably wasn't intentional. Yeah, no, they, it's, it's, it's an odd film. It's got a very dark atmosphere. And, and we should point out, obviously, that this Burnt Offerings was uh, made in the 70s and um, obviously yeah, The Shining, 76, and obviously The Shining uh, came out in 1980. So I think there's a really strong chance that this was uh, an influence on that film, for sure. And uh, we should talk about Karen Black as well. Um, she's great in the film. And apparently, uh, according to director Dan Curtis, she actually got the movie made. It was attaching her that sort of made it go forward. Um, and of course, they're reunited after working on Trilogy of Terror. And um, Dan Curtis actually went to the set of Hitchcock's family plot um, to pitch the film to Karen Black. And uh, yeah, she, she, she liked it and the film got made. And, and she's good in the film, isn't she? Yeah, she is really good. I mean, I think it's not to cast any shade on the cast. Um, Curtis was working with three pretty notorious alcoholics. Um, right. And to be able to wrangle all three of them to get such amazing performances, they're all great. They are really great. And uh, it, it's, it's one of those uh, ensembles where they could all three of them be in completely different films, if that makes sense, and yet somehow they coalesce. And that's oh, yeah, quite, absolutely. quite a skill for both the cast and for the director to, to bring those different energies together into the sort of same goal. So, yeah, that, that's really special as well. Um, I mean, it does have a slight TV movie vibe, doesn't it? And it, it was shot on a TV schedule. It was written in two weeks and shot in 30 days. But there's still some lovely camera work here. The production design's lovely, the lighting. Um, you compared it to Mario Bava a couple of times when we watched it. Yeah, too, absolutely. 
Yeah, I think I think there's a well, you know, spoiler alert for the recommendations, but I think there is some very Barbaresque stuff in it, mm. and actually a lot of the practical effects are really very impressive for the era, uh, particularly some of the sort of architectural stuff that happens in the third act. Yeah, God, yeah, and and maybe let's not talk too much about the ending because I I do wonder if this is a slightly unseen one, and and even if you've read the book, it's got a very different ending to the book. Um, again, you know, similar to The Shining, but yeah. Uh, Curtis on the commentary actually criticizes the book for having no ending and uh, <laughs> he was kind of worried about doing it but then um, you know he actually turned it down but then he went home and uh, had an idea for the ending and and that's kind of what made him move forward with it so yeah there is some really cool stuff in the third act Dan, do you have anything else to say about burnt offerings? I, I I worry that if I discuss it too heavily I'm gonna I'm gonna give it away because it is so much about that third act. I mean, obviously, uh, it's very much worth acknowledging Bette Davis in it as well, who's yeah. a, a sort of almost, like, I guess, slightly surprising casting. Although, looking back at the film, you know, her enormous catalogue of films, I've actually seen far more from her later, like, the later period of her yeah. career when she was sort of playing against type than I have from the early earlier portion of her career when she gained her very much earned reputation um but she's absolutely fantastic in it and there are there are moments when she as a character is sort of forced to to doubt herself because her as an older woman an older older actress an older character in the film like one of her big staples is that she is she's you know still kicking at this age and then some events occur that cause her to doubt herself and it's that doubt that really sort of tears her apart and she's so good at um at demonstrating that like not just the self-doubt, but the, the 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 resistance to the self-doubt because she hates the idea that she isn't as together as she as she thinks she yeah. is. She puts a lot of pride in in being as as sort of uh, like sturdy as she want as she occurs in the first act at her age. Yeah, absolutely. And and before we move on to recommendations, because I, I have a feeling I know one of your recommendations based on what you've been saying. But I do want to say that Burnt Offerings... God, I sound like such an idiot this week. I'm so... <laughs> my brain... I just want to say... Um, yeah, uh, I do want to say that this is a packed disc. Um, there's two commentaries and um, some great featurettes, like interview stuff. I mainly focused on the commentary um, between Karen Black, Dan Curtis and the co-writer uh, because I am... Um, obviously in production so uh, I'm, I'm very busy um, but I had a cursory look at some of the other stuff and, and it, it's a really good disc and the commentary is very honest great stories um, it's not constant there are some gaps where they just watch the film which always annoys me um, and it's <laughs> slightly unusual for a commentary featuring three people the fact that all three of them were just sat there watching is, is weird but um, that's a testament to the quality of the film I surely. guess yeah well yeah mm -hmm. and uh, yeah Karen Black comes across as really sweet and uh, Dan Curtis seems to like the location more than the actors though <laughs> it's quite funny He's, he speaks lovingly about the building so many times and then you know less so about the performance but um, well, I mean, as, it's really as enjoyable. As, yeah, as good as they are, I'm absolutely certain it was a bit of a logistical nightmare on set oh, with God. those three. I'm sure. But so worth it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, um, do you want to go first on the recommendations, Dan? Um, I guess I just the last thing I want to say about the actual feature is, um, uh, you know, for anyone watching it who, who cares about such things, there's a really beautiful uh, transition of uh, lighting styles throughout the picture, particularly in the second act, where the um, the emotional mood of the location is very much written through the the way the house is lit. 
um, mm. and his life and sunlight returns to the house, it, it, it feels like it takes on a different character just mm. because of the way it's lit uh, and, and also photographed, but mostly the lighting. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's a really, really beautiful example of what can be achieved uh, with lighting changes alone. Yeah, totally. And, and the shot choices, a lot of low angles, you really feel like you're kind of in the house with them. Yeah, it's it's really 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 great. Uh, yeah, they 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 start off with the characters having a lot of like power shots. Yeah, uh, with the camera below them, and as they're robbed of that power, as as events take place, the camera gets higher and higher. It's great. It really is. So uh, we both recommend Burnt Offerings. If you haven't uh, added that to your Arrow video collection, it is a real treat. So Dan, what would you recommend off the back of this film? Um, well, I mean, I'd recommend the whole film, but specifically I'd recommend the dripping tap segment of Barva's Black Sabbath from I 63. literally knew, I yeah, literally knew this was what you were going to open with. Because I turned to you and said while we were watching it, this is very Black Sabbath, I'm going to recommend Black Sabbath. Dan, I've got um, some really sad news for you. If you think that I remember every single word you say at the moment, it's that's not true. I can barely I, remember what I did 10 minutes ago. <laughs> I, I don't know why you're negging me like this, Sam. But, I'm, <laughs> but I know perfectly well you have a, uh, an audiographic memory for everything I say. Because of how yeah, yeah, just for you. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> anyway, Dan, tell us about this, this segment. Well, while uh, aesthetically it's it's actually not that similar to um, to burnt offerings, there is a you know obviously Barber is particularly famous for his lighting and his his uh, environmental storytelling. I, I feel that in the uh, in the dripping tap segment of uh, um, of Black Sabbath, there's a lot of connections to the goings on in the attic in burnt offerings, and and in particular the sort of the denouement of that bit of that section of the film. Um, I'm being a little oblique for, for spoiler reasons, but um, those of you who've already seen uh, Black Sabbath, and I think it's probably a more watched film uh, amongst genre enthusiasts maybe than Burnt Offerings, you'll see it when you watch it. And those of you who haven't seen either, I, I strongly recommend Black Sabbath as well. God, yeah, absolutely. Incredible film. That, is uh, that on Arrow as well? That's on Arrow as well, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. And um, they're doing that fancy Mario Bava box set, aren't they? So, oh, baby, um, that looks very nice. That looks really nice. I'll definitely be getting that. And we'll definitely, definitely be covering that, I, I'd imagine. Um, I hope so. Well, we'll have to get it soon because they lose the rights to it at the end of the year. I know. <laughs> well, my first recommendation uh, based on the film is House of the Devil. It's one that... You know, a lot of people have seen, but, you know, a lot of people also haven't seen it. And uh, I, sometimes I feel like these films help put the film we're talking about into context. It's a similar kind of slow burn, um, a similar kind of uh, location. And, yeah, there's a couple of crossover plot points that I think would make them a really nice double bill. I think I would go for House of the Devil first in the evening and then follow it with Burnt Offerings. Um, and that's a really nice little double bill. Dan, what have you got next? Can I recommend a film off the back of House of the Devil? <laughs> All right, and then I'll recommend a film off the back of that if we're playing this game. Yeah, let's do that. I want to recommend a film from 71. Fright. <laughs> by... Fright. Yeah, it's Fright by Peter Collinson. Right, absolute... I've already recommended that on this podcast, Dan, and I've already made the same point. So look who's not listening now. <laughs> I hate to break it to you, Sam, but I don't <laughs> listen to you at all. <laughs> not even on the podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, nice try, buddy. 
Uh, what's your next recommendation? <laughs> my ne- next recommendation is a Paul Henry film from 64, also starring Bette Davis in the uh, against type castings that she do later in her career. And it's called Dead Ringer, in which he plays identical twin sisters. And it's... Uh, I, I, I really don't want to say anything about it. It's just such a delight. It's sort of a... A sort of like it's got elements of noir, but it's not really a noir. It's got elements of murder mystery, but it's definitely not a murder mystery. It's oh, it's just an absolute delight. And Davis is on fucking fire Lovely. in the performances. There's a whole bunch of stuff at the beginning of the film where she's uh, like aggressively conversing with her twin. She's playing both, uh, and there's no there's no fancy split screen. It, it's just Davis playing against a double in a wig uh, with her back to the camera, but she's delivering both lines and between the editing and her acting it's unbelievably seamless i think it might be the best like acting between uh two characters played by the same actor i've ever seen it's yeah it's really masterfully done and it's a genuinely great film as well fantastic recommendation now i uh for my second recommendation based on this film i'm going to recommend something that is going to annoy dan but i feel like if there's a chance that even one of these Dear sweet precious arrowheads that listen to this podcast, just one of you out there hasn't seen Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to be the the person that recommends it to you. (laughs) But yeah, no, uh, the first Evil Dead. And and the main reason I'm recommending this is again to put burnt offerings into context because obviously burnt offerings came before Evil Dead, it came before The Shining, and it's a massive influence on both. There is one sequence in this film that's almost shot for shot, The Evil Dead, and I just wanted to underline that. Should we move on to films from the past couple of weeks that we've watched? And actually, before we do that, stay tuned to Extra Features this week because we've got something really special. We've got two things really special. One's an email and one's an interview, but, um, you know, don't just just switch off. Keep listening. (laughs) I worry, Dan, I worry. they They don't... They don't switch off, do they? They hope, listen all the way through. I hope not, because they, they're going to miss something really, really special if they do. Um, don't that's don't been, break my heart. Being provided by Dan. And uh, a lovely email to, to us both as well. So anyway, past couple of weeks, Dan, what have you watched? Well, you recommended Midsummer last week, uh, last time. Last yeah, to, to a certain extent I did, yeah. To, to a, yeah, a, a sort of a, a, an oblique recommendation. And, yeah. uh, and I saw it today. I'm still processing it slightly. But uh, for those of you who enjoyed Midsummer, whether or not it was because of Sam's recommendation, uh, I'd like to recommend, and this isn't one of my filmic recommendations, this is me sticking a bonus in. I'd, oh, I'd, like, to recommend, I'd like to recommend an album to you. <laughs> and it's Midsummer as an album. <laughs> this is uh, good. It's, it's a 33-track it's a album. It's on Apple Music, uh, so you don't have to pay for it if you've got that. Um, I mean, it's a 66-track album, if you count the follow-up album, also from 2012. Um, and it's called John Barleycorn Reborn. Uh, I think the first one is called Dark Britannica as a subtitle, but I don't know if Apple Music will recognise that. Um, it's a 33-track, uh, like, sort of folk album. Those of you familiar with things like uh, The Wicker Man will know who John Barleycorn is. It's, it's basically, imagine if, uh, imagine if the Levelers had cameoed heavenly in Midsummer. <laughs> then this this album would I mean, be that would be that film what 
Well, that is that is a waking nightmare for me, but um, <laughs> but good. I'm glad that you've but recommended an my, album. My 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 prof, my first proper recommendation, my first filmic recommendation, um, is Stunt Squad from 1977. Uh, if you remember, I re- recommended Fango Balente uh, last time. I'm still working my way through the Blu-rays from the uh, from the German company that that put that out, uh, as recommended by Andre, who's uh, who's a, a regular listener. And it's it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, it's directed by uh, Domenico Paolella, I think, who is one of the four credited writers on Lamberto Barva's Body Puzzle, if that's a ringing endorsement for anyone. I don't think I've seen any of the other films he's directed, but it's a, um, it's a fantastic, over-the-top uh, Italian uh, Politeschi movie. Basically, a, a bunch of protection racketers have, uh, have started just blowing up uh, companies that aren't paying their protection dues, uh, and the police, uh, out of desperation to stop this rise in sort of terrorist uh, racketeering, uh, put together a stunt squad, which ostensibly is uh, a bunch of yellow-helmeted motorcyclists who can shoot cardboard targets while popping a wheelie. It is brilliant. <laughs> wow. Uh, it's got probably, my, I think it might have my favourite car crash in it. It was, oh, wow. uh, yeah, I, I actually only saw it for the first time when I watched this Blu-ray, uh, previously, my favourite car crash was the one from the beginning of um, Tim Roth's War Zone, the uh, unbelievably depressing um, uh, Ray Winston, Ray Winston picture. Yeah, uh, which is super, super uh, unpleasant, and I think actually still not available in England. Um, another rec- tacit recommendation there, but um, but that's got an amazing car crash at the beginning. There's a, a ridiculously over the top car crash, uh, like sort of you know pure. Practical effects, no CGI, obviously, uh, from 77. Um, just the, the fieriest car crash you've ever seen. Uh, the whole film's great. Wow. Well, um, I'm going to allow the fact that you just recommended three things in one recommendation <laughs> segment. Oh, um, boy, you, you wait till the next one. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm about to do both of mine in one because I went to a double bill um, this week. So, um, But this is going to be the whole of my recommendations uh, for this week because I actually went to uh, a documentary double bill at the Regent Street Cinema this week, uh, which is a beautiful space. Uh, even if they do need to invest in air conditioning, uh, it is very warm there. But don't let that put you off. There's some wonderful documentary playing there at the moment and I actually went there after shooting all day uh, with one of the stars of my second film Um, I was getting scary stuff with Hazel Townsend who's this amazing physical performer Uh, and yeah we were doing some dangerous stuff um, that was Hazel's idea and uh, looks really cool in the film I can't wait for people to see it Uh, but yeah we went to a double bill of fashion documentaries the evening after shooting and um, yeah, we saw Studio 54 and Holston. Uh, now, one is obviously about Studio 54, the Studio 54, uh, the club, the notorious New York club. And uh, that is probably, of the two, the most compelling documentary. It, once it gets going, it's an insane story. However, Holston uh, was also great. Slightly weird wraparound thing where they had acting to sort of tie the 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 footage together which wasn't 100% successful but I would still recommend it it's a very interesting and moving story about um, a specific fashion designer who uh, Americans will probably know more than people in the UK uh, because he was quite notorious for a while so yeah I, I spent the day shooting scary stuff and then spent the evening watching two compelling documentaries in a beautiful old cinema with a really unique person so uh 
it was my best day of 2019 so far, I'd say. So, um, yes, those are my recommendations for this week. Two documentaries, Studio 54, Holston. Dan, what have you been watching? Are those, uh, are those both, uh, like, modern documentaries or are either of them re-releases? Yeah, so they're both modern and the uh, Regent Street Cinema is doing a whole range of documentaries at the moment. The trailers before both films were different and so many compelling documentaries coming it's up. A, it's a lovely venue as well. A really, really nice venue. So, yeah, really exciting time for documentaries. I promise to recommend something that isn't a documentary next week because I feel like I've done quite a lot recently. But um, anyway, Dan, what have you been watching? Let me tell you a fun story. Yes. So, are you familiar with a podcast called the Projection Booth Podcast? I, I absolutely love it, yeah. So, yeah, so uh, Jen, my wife, and I uh, received an email at the end of last year asking if we would uh, guest on the 2019 uh, season of the Projection Booth Podcast. Fantastic. Uh, the subject of which was post-apocalyptic cinema. Obviously, we were both very excited at this opportunity, and Mike White, the host uh, and producer of the show, sent through uh, a list of the films that he uh, that he was going to cover, that he wanted to cover in the season, and said that we could choose uh, from that what we would uh, what we wanted to talk about. And so we put in a first choice, which is actually for the uh, December episode, one of the December episodes, and a um, and a backup choice, which we recorded yesterday. Now, the backup choice uh, was Peter Selskin's Apocalypse Quartet. Quintet. Mm. Uh, quartet. Four films. I don't know if you're aware of them. Uh, they're, uh, you, Sam, I'm sure are. I mean, our, our listeners, I'm not sure. Which are uh, War of the Worlds, The Next Century, uh, Golem, uh, Obeo Bar, The End of Civilization, and Gar Gar, Glory to the Heroes, um, which uh, are sort of like early to late 80s Soviet sci-fi uh, and fit very well into the uh, the theme of post-apocalyptic narrative. So I was very excited to talk about those. Uh, Jen and I were busy re-watching them. Uh, he, he said, uh, do you have all of these? Are there any that you need to fill? Are there any gaps you need to fill? Would you like me to send you copies of anything? Which is very generous of him. Uh, I said, no, we're fine. I do. I have copies of all of these already. He uh, he said, well, look, I've, uh, I, I've got a a Dropbox with copies of them in it in case you need to check, but it's also got supplemental material in there as well in case you, you know, if there's anything that's of interest. And he sent that link through, uh, as well as a link to the films, which I, I won't spoil the names of, but the ones we're doing in December as well. I couldn't open that Dropbox link because my Dropbox account, Dropbox account is not of a pro level enough that I could open a file of that size within it. Cut to uh, about two weeks ago, and I used Jen's Pro Dropbox account to have a look at the additional material, and I realised that actually, the Apocalypse Quartet is not Peter Solskin's <laughs> um, classic Soviet sci-fi quadrilogy. Uh, it is in fact four unbelievably bad Christian films <laughs> <laughs> oh. about the rapture, oh, wow. uh, starting with Apocalypse in the Eye of the Storm. Uh, and then moving through Apocalypse, Revelation, Apocalypse, whatever the fuck. Three others. They're god-awful. Anyway, so I watched all of them <laughs> with Jen, and I did, uh, and we recorded a two-and-a-half-hour uh, podcast with Mike yesterday in which Jen and I deliriously uh, damn ourselves to hell. <laughs> wow. Uh, however, so as a result, I've not seen much recently, but... What I would like to recommend is my favourite of the Saltskin quadrilogy, which is Obiobar, The End of Civilization. Uh, it's from 1985. It's an absolute masterwork. 
It's one of my favourite of the sort of post-Toskovsky, miserablest Soviet cinemas. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, hey, hey. There is nothing miserable about Tarkovsky. That's, this is like when people say that Ray Jehead are miserable. They're not. It's uplifting. It's spiritual. It's poetic. It's poetic cinema, Dan. Carry on. Well, thank you for proving my point about the fact that you weren't listening to me. <laughs> what, I said, what I said was post-Tarkovsky, miserablest cinema. Oh, so okay. I wasn't saying that Tarkovsky cinema oh, okay, was miserable. Okay. I was saying right. that there was a trend for okay. downbeat narratives after yeah. Tarkovsky ended the tradition of pro-space race hurrah for Russia cinema. So Got it. Tarkovsky represents the watershed in the uh, era of Soviet filmmaking, and post-Tarkovsky, it no longer felt necessary, and there are obviously exceptions within this, but it, it no longer seemed as blanketly necessary to make... Uh, massively pro-state Soviet cinema and so it went from being we're going to be the first to explore the planets to oh fuck everything's gone wrong which was obviously also largely to do with the, uh, the ongoing Cold War but yeah Obio Bar is uh, ostensibly about a post-nuclear space there's under a thousand humans left they're all Russian uh, they've all been sort of hurried into this dome up in the mountains which protects them from the endless nuclear winter outside and, uh, and as a sort of a comment on the illegalization of religion in Soviet Russia, there's, uh, there's this general feeling that uh, th- there's a, a sort of a newborn religion amongst the populace who think that this ark is coming to save them. And so they're all investing all their time into preparing for the ark. Uh, and our main character, who's a sort of a fixer, but was originally part of the, the group that told everyone that they needed to go to the dome and that the ark was coming because the religion is sort of created by the this you know nouveau government that that put all the people in this space he's now having to go around and try and convince people to stop buggering about waiting for the ark and to actually help patch the dome as it starts to fall apart and all their lives are risked um and then all of this with a slightly sad uh, romantic subplot going on as well um it's a it's an absolute delight and it's one of the, I think it's one of the strongest. It's very Gilliam-esque, actually. I think it came out the same year as Brazil. 85, was Brazil 85, Sam? Uh, You're good at this. I am normally good at this, but my brain has officially shut down. So I, I have a feeling no, but uh, probably. Okay. I, have a, I have a feeling yes. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, so if not, then it's, you know, within a year of Brazil. And, and there's a lot of very similar feelings, especially later on. You look at like things like 12 Monkeys and stuff, the asylum sequences, and more importantly, the, the, the future world sequences in 12 Monkeys feel very much like they, uh, they might be borrowed or referencing um, OBO Bar. So yeah, uh, to spell that, if you're tracking it down, it's just the letter O and then B-I, the letter O-B-A, um, subtitled The End of Civilization. It's really, really worth checking out. It's beautiful. Excellent recommendation. Shall we go into extra features? Extra features? Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. So, extra features. This week, we've both got something to bring to the table. Shall I go first, Dan? Yes, Sam, you go first. Because we've got an email to both of us, which was beautiful. It's from James Selway. Nice. um, And this made my week. So, it goes... Hi, I'm sure you get a bunch of fan mail, but I just wanted to send my best wishes about Sam being back after a necessary absence. The pod would never be the same without him, despite the Insiders episodes being fabulous. I'm getting a little bit emotional reading this, genuinely, so I'm going to persevere. 
it's really meant a lot to receive, James. Thank you. Uh, despite disparaging comments from Sam on the last episode, I think the last two have been two very interesting and entertaining episodes. Thank um, you, James. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, two questions. I love Frankenstein's Creature, and I was wondering if Sam could say anything about any projects in the future. If it's as bold as FC, then it's something to look forward to. Two, I was wondering if either of you were thinking of covering Mike's Terraformers or Mikio Yamamoto's The Vampire Doll, two really overlooked entries in Arrow Video's canon, in my opinion. If that's not my place to ask, please tell me to screw off. I won't be offended. We will never tell you to screw off, James, after that <laughs> beautiful email. Uh, Dan, do you want to take the second part of that uh, first and then I will deal with what I'm doing at the moment? So, yeah, absolutely. Or the vampire doll. I I've not seen Terraformers yet, uh, but obviously we like Miko. We've covered uh, at least one of his films already. We did audition. Have we done anything else by Miko? Oh, and of course, Thirteen Assassins as well. So we've done a couple of Mikos already. Um, Blade, Blade uh, of the Immortal. Blade of the Immortal. Thank you. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, we did Blade yeah. of the Immortal. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 certainly not averse to to giving it a look. I'm also very up for the idea of doing Vampire Doll uh, in the future as well. So yeah, Me I too. don't see any problem with either of those. I think they're both uh, both good contenders for the podcast i mean obviously the the problem we suffer is just a, a wealth of uh yeah of of titles and and so it does become something of a uh what's the what's the expression i'm looking for something of riches an embarrassment uh, of riches an embarrassment of riches thank you very much it's an embarrassment of riches when it comes to picking what we're going to do next but yeah both very very solid suggestions thank you james and just very quickly uh, on the first part of that um i am working on my second film at the moment uh, I'm going to announce the title now, which I haven't said anywhere else, but it's called A Little More Flesh. And yeah, it's definitely as bold as Frankenstein's Creature, but in a very different way. Um, if Frankenstein's Creature was Arrow Academy, then uh, A Little More Flesh is definitely Arrow Video. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, uh, sorry, Sam. I genuinely thought you were going to say if, uh, if Frankenstein's Creature is Arrow Academy, then A Little More Flesh is definitely 88 films. <laughs> But I, I apologise. I, I mean, I just... if, if anything, it's indicator. <laughs> lovely, it's lovely Sam. Indicator. Don't French it up. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm genuinely very specifically making this film for the dear sweet arrowheads who listen to this podcast. I massively appreciate the support you showed me on my first film. So uh, there will be loads you recognise in my next film uh, if you listen to this podcast. There are going to be in jokes within it. I can't talk to... In fact, I'm not going to say anything about the plot. Um, that will come later. But uh, I, I want you all to know that you are in my head as I'm making it. So In your um, head and in your heart. Exactly. Thank you, James, for that email. It genuinely meant a lot. Now, Dan, you have an amazing, amazing extra feature. Yeah, this is this is a treat. Uh, so when uh, Sam uh, chose Burnt Offerings, a film that we both love, I immediately had an idea for an extra feature. I wasn't entirely sure if I'd be able to pull it off. I have a, a dear friend uh, who I've known for some years now uh, who actually I, I got in touch with because my very first workshop that I owned was I sublet it from a garage down, down the road. It was an old railway arch. and looked more like a, a place for the third act of a Saw movie than, <laughs> than a legitimate effects studio. But uh, one of the guys that worked at the garage was a welder and he also welded for a magician uh, by the name of Simon Drake, who I was a big fan of when I was a kid. Simon had a TV show on Channel 4 called The Secret Cabaret and was one of the first horror magicians or one of the first modern horror magicians, I should say. 
Oscar Metinier's lot. Um, and uh, yeah, so I was obviously very excited to, to meet Simon and we, we got on very well uh, when we did meet, not least of which because, and I hadn't known this about him before we met, it was just something I discovered attending one of his magic shows and then uh he has a he has a venue in near kennington called the house of magic uh and he does these fantastic uh live shows there um and he invited me along to one of them and actually i ended up taking reese shearsmith with me as a guest uh to one of his uh, to uh, to rewatch it a few few years later and he and reese got on very well so i you know i use simon to show off a lot this is no exception um it turned out simon had done quite a lot of film consultancy uh over the years and he you know simon is a fan he's a consummate performer he's a fantastic magician he's also a great storyteller but he's always been a little bit shy about putting these things down on record but when sam suggested burnt offerings i thought well i absolutely have to try and get simon to talk on record uh, about the time he was working with and sort of intermittently living with uh, although i think depending on the edit he uh, he he says he didn't live with him and then goes on to say that he did stay the night a few times uh, with oliver reed which is oh, it's amazing. So we only we only really chip the uh, chip the surface of of Simon's amazing anecdotes here. But uh, coming up is a recording of me at Simon's House of Magic, uh, talking about his time with Oliver Reed. So I'm very pleased to be joined here uh, by Simon Drake, magician and owner of the House of Magic. Correct. Um, Simon has over the years um, provided services to film and television as uh, as a consultant, uh, specifically in the in the areas of magic, and had a chance to spend some time with the star of Burnt Offerings, Mr. Oliver Reed. Uh, thank you for joining us, Simon. Hello, Dan. <laughs> you bald bastard. <laughs> thank you, Simon. You're welcome. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be attached to the project? Yes, I. Um I think they'd contacted Ali Bongo first or something, and I don't. I think they were all scared off the magic circle hierarchy. And um, it was Claire St. John, who's still in the film business, who's a production manager, uh, was, uh, persistent to the bosses there, usually. Um, she put me, uh, mentioned me, my name, and uh, they called me in. They sent me a script, and I read it. And um, What was the film? Castaway, Nicholas Rogue. And... Um, I mean, Oliver, I think, had done a stream of really terrible films before that. <laughs> and actually, Castaway, he was pretty good in it. Uh, he was very drunk all the time in it. But um, he, he, so the script came through. There were about, I don't know, I can't remember how many, nine things in the script maybe, which were opportunities for magic tricks. So the device that Nick Rogue had come up with was so that Gerald, the character in the film, had, he was a loafer. He wouldn't get on with working on the tropical island. And, and, and the, the idea was he did magic tricks and just just was an idiot, you know, played with cards and eggs and silly things, you know, and showed off. And, and so that was sort of Nick's idea. And so he called me in for a meeting after I... And, and, there, and two long meetings with Nick Rogue, me and him sitting there for a few hours in his office. And there, there, there's script rewrites. So there's suddenly 27 things in the script, <laughs> which were just... Because I brought bags of stuff with me and, and just showed him things that may work. And he loved them. And so I, I was tasked with uh, teaching Oliver sleight of hand, oh, which has got to be the hardest job anyone's ever had in the movie industry. <laughs> teaching Oliver Reed sleight of hand. I mean, it just doesn't just slip off the tongue, does it? <laughs> and, and so um, I spent probably about four weeks all in all with him, pretty much every day. Uh, not, yeah, I mean, it was very peculiar. And it, I look back on it with... It's a treasured memory... 
but it was a difficult time. I mean, he was diff he was tricky, you know. He wasn't a receptive student. He was a terrible student. He wouldn't, every time we got together, he'd call his friends in for a magic show. You know, the old do Dobbs, the old retired jockey and various the gardeners and people like that. And they'd sit on the floor like little boys and he'd be all excited at the front going, come on, let's see the magic. And I'd go, I'm here to teach you. No, no, you're here to do a magic show, Simon. Come on. <laughs> and I'd do a magic show. Oh, my God. And he was, he was like a little boy. He absolutely loved it. And he was so thrilled and completely beside himself with excitement about the whole thing. And we got on really well. I think that what I, I thought about it quite carefully before I prepared myself because I, I knew he was an alcoholic that made you drink. So I had poacher's pockets inside my jacket that I could pour drinks in. So I would drink some, but I couldn't drink all of it. You can't keep up with him. It's impossible. And he'd kind of go, come on, Simon, let's go to the cider shed. And you go to this shed, this lovely old, really old sort of shed, sort of barn, <laughs> with all these big barrels in it. He'd pour out this cider which had mould floating in it. <laughs> and it was, it was like drinking sherry. I mean, it was incredibly strong and sweet. And it was just ridiculously strong. So that's, like that, that's when he wasn't looking, you know. And, uh, and he was quite amazed by my drinking prowess. I could drink <laughs> so much. Yes, got hollow legs, Simon. He'd say things like that. And uh, so I—that was one little trick. And the other one was I—I I pretended I'd never heard of him because he's been so—he was such a big movie star for so long. He—he—he he, he liked that, and I—I—I I, I didn't know much about him other than he—he. He, I knew he was quite down to earth, you know. Anyway. I just pretended I had never seen him in any of his films at all. <laughs> and he kept, he was quite shocked. He said, do you know, see me as Bill Sykes, Simon, and Oliver, you know, was directed by my uncle, Sir Carol Reed. I go, no, I didn't see Oliver. I don't like musicals. I hate them, actually, uh, uh, <laughs> Oliver. And he go, oh, did you see me as Hannibal Brooks with Rita Tushy pushing the elephant over the mountain? No, I didn't say, did you not see me with Batesy wrestling naked with our bollocks hanging out? And I go, no, I didn't see you in, what was that film? He said, women in love. It's, a, you know, um, Ken Russell, you Philistine Jew. I go, oh, thanks. Anyway, he was just a... And so it really worked that, and he I, underneath it, I don't know if he sussed it, but he was. I think he was pleasantly amused by the fact that I didn't really give a shit. <laughs> um, and I was polite with him, but I was just trying to get him to work to do these tricks, the things that were in the script. I had them all with me, and yeah. And so um, after, oh, I don't know. I guess after a few days, you know, I remember him saying once, you know, uh, he said. Uh, um, Driver, he called him Pig, because he was working class, which was pretty horrific. He said, Pig can't take you to, back to London tonight because he's too drunk. Because he would make everyone drink. He said, he said, um, um, he said you're going to have to stay here. You better not fuck my wife. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't dream of it. Uh, uh, Josephine, his wife, was very lovely, very attractive, and really so strange that she was with him. She was so sweet and sort of like a country girl and just lovely and quiet. And he was just not like that. And... She she had an amazing knack of disappearing when he turned, you know, because he'd turn at a certain time of night, you know, in the evening. He'd become a kind of Sir Percy, this mad fucking monster, you know. She'd just look around, she'd be gone. She just was that his name for himself, Sir Percy? No, no, no. It was just a, no. It's, it wasn't. He didn't. He didn't acknowledge his blackout drinking. He he just became a, a monster, you know. Oh, Jesus. And very threatening and, and big, you know. But I just. 
I don't know. I, I, don't know. I didn't show fear, so he didn't. He, I, I think he quite liked me. He started calling me Mark. I think his son's called Mark. And he, he was, he'd get drunk and call me, you know, he'd get, get wistful and sort of sad. But anyway, and then he chased me around the house with like rapiers, a sword, you know, <laughs> dark Simon, <laughs> like this, you know, and that was pretty incredible. Um, and you know, I was young, quite fast. He didn't get me, but he was, he meant business. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't, wasn't really aggressive. He, he wasn't really someone who'd fight you. He would, you'd think he was going to. He was a big show. It was all bark, yeah. He, he was really, he was underneath it. I got to know him quite well. And he was quite a sensitive, quiet man, believe it or not. When he wasn't he played, blackout drunk. He, well, when, when he was blackout drunk, he, he was a monster. Well, everyone, yeah. anyone is, I think. But, I mean, he, he played the part of Oliver Reed. You know, so he'd go out to a restaurant with him. He's a nightmare. Even when he wasn't, it was just lunchtime. He was drunk, but not that bad. But he'd be a nightmare because he would play Oliver Reed. You know, I mean, it's another story. But I'll finish this one because this is a, <laughs> the one I told you before. I think you might like this one. And so he chased me. Then I stayed the night. And the next morning, we got up pretty early. We had to go to uh, Elstree for makeup tests and stuff like that. And um, the driver drove us in. And I'm in the back with him. And uh, and I said, uh, you know, because uh, Rick McCallum, the producer, and Nick have both I've been on the film about a week. And both said, how's it going, Roy? I said, he just wants me to do magic shows. I can't get him. We've got to get him to do some work. You know, you've got to get him to do some practicing, you know. You know, do the magic show, but then say, have a go at this then, you know. I said, I'll try, you know. <laughs> it's very hard to get him to do anything. And so in the car, we're on the M4 coming through, and I, I wasn't really, I had a bag of tricks with me. I didn't have a jacket or anything like that. It was, you know, I just, just picked, I, 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 anyway, <laughs> long story short, I, I said to boss, I said, should, should we, Take this opportunity to do a bit of practicing in French drop or something, a bit of palming. Because what? I said, well, should we do a bit of work? He said, what do you say, Simon? I said, well, we should do a bit of practicing. He said, pig, stop the car. This is on the M4 in the rain. He said, Simon, get out. I said, <laughs> what? Get out? We're on the motorway, man. He said, take, get your bag, get out of my fucking car. Gone. So I got out and went, right. Said, Drive on. I said, you drove off. I thought he was going to stop and to go, come on then, only joking. No, he didn't. He fucked. That's it, gone. So I hitched home. It was like, wow. I hitched home uh, and um, got back to London and phoned my agent, Charles Armitage at Nolgate at the time. And, and, and he, he was really keen to know what would be going on. I said, well, last night he chased me around the house with a rapier and he's just dropped me off on the M4 in the rain. And on, he said, well, on the motorway? I said, yeah. He said, oh, oh no, you can't, you're not allowed to do that shit. No, no, no. He's really, what well, we're chasing around the house with a sort of real sword or plastic sort of sword. No, real, real thing. You know, you know, um, right. Uh, and he, anything else? I said, well, he pulled a gun on a minicab driver's <laughs> bollocks. He went, oh, uh, I'm going to ring you back, right? Just say where you are, I'll ring you back. Well, there's, <laughs> there's no mobile phones there. It was a landline, so I was at home anyway. And he rang me back right, uh, 10 minutes later. He says, OK, I've taken you off the film. Um, uh, that's it, you know. Um, so you're not on it anymore, and you're going to be paid in full. And I went, oh, all right, that's a shame, but there we are. Uh, uh, then he, he said, look, I've got to go, but I'm going to ring you back in half an hour. We'll talk about whatever. He rang me back about 15 minutes later and just said, oh, you're reinstated on the film. <laughs> uh, you're getting three, three times the money. Your hands are now insured for a million quid. Um, and you're getting a per diem, which is actually, uh, it's called a per diem, but it's actually danger money. And it was a lot, a lot more money. You know, I mean, it was not just a bit. It was a lot more money 
because he's played hard. And they can't go back to Ali Bongo and these guys at the Magic Circle. You know, they're very straight and, you know, go, uh, didn't work with Simon, could you come? I mean, they, they wouldn't last two minutes with him. They're te he's terrifying, you know. I mean, <laughs> anyway. So um, I went, oh, okay, well done. He said, yes, and, uh, you, you know, you shouldn't have any more trouble, you know. The producer's very, very upset that this has all happened. He's going to have a word with Oliver. I said, well, good luck to him. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, so he said, um, uh, the production manager's going to phone you. So the production manager phoned me. He says, oh, I heard there was a bit of trouble. I said, I said it's all over. I said, Don't, it's all fine. He said, yeah, yeah, it's all fine now. So look, tomorrow morning, uh, six o'clock, we'll send a car for you. Uh, you're going to be at Fulham Registry Office. He's getting married in the film. And uh, you can take some time there in breaks to teach him stuff. I went, yeah, no problem. I'll be there. So... So I showed up at about 6.45 in the Fulham, Fulham um, car park, you know, and the, there's this Winnebago with the fucking curtain twitching, right? <laughs> and then the door opens and Ollie's in a sort of dressing gown with half his, you know, body falling out of it, you know. <laughs> he goes, Simon, Simon, come over here, come over here. He goes, I, I, I get in there and he says, shut the door, shut the door. I like, sit down, he says, do you want a drink? I went, no, no, I'm all right, it's a bit early for me. He says, <laughs> okay, well, did it work? I said, did what work? He said, did you get more fucking money? I went, a lot more money. Yeah. He <laughs> said, jolly good. Right, let's do some mag magic practice then. <laughs> and that was it. Now, he did a few things like that that were unbelievably kind. And the thing I realised about him after some time hanging out with him, he was a very kind man. And he was... Um, he knew the, how the movie industry worked from the inside. He knew how it worked like... A watchmaker knows how a simple clock works. I mean, he really knew how it worked. And he manipulated the situations all the time to, to, to uh, quite often, other people's benefit. I, I mean, things did go wrong. That's the problem, because he got so drunk. And I didn't want to go to the Seychelles. I, 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 I definitely didn't want to go, because I knew I'd... Because I wasn't crew and I wasn't cast. So as, an, as a consultant, you know, sort of helping the director and teaching and coaching, you're kind of fifth business. You're just sort of this sort of thing floating about <laughs> that doesn't fit into any um, club. Really. So I knew I'd just be with him all the time. And in the Seychelles, that was, I knew it was going to be a nightmare, which it was. And so I, I said I couldn't go, I had other work. So I, I, I didn't go, which I made a packed up thing for him to take with him, you know, a packed lunch. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and there in the Seychelles, he, 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 he chucked Reg Prince, who's his body double, who's a very good friend of his, you know, um, um, off a pier, you know, into water he thought was deep and it was only a few inches deep and it broke his back. You know? Jesus. Yeah, and he didn't mean to do that. He was in bits about it, but he, it was an accident that happened because of his drinking. So things would happen around him that weren't great. And I mean, I spoke to Amanda Donahue, who's the female lead in it, about how you must not be in the same hotel as him because he was saying, I'm going to fuck Amanda. In the Seychelles, Simon, I'm going to fuck her. You watch me. I said, well, I don't think I'll see it. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So I said, you, you must not be in the same hotel. Because after a certain time of night, that's why he never did theatre. Because he was an incredible actor. I mean, he was incredible. I've worked on a few films and some theatre things. And I've been around performers, you know, 40 years. And, and I, I didn't see anything like it, actually. I mean, he was a terrific actor. He was electrifying. And he just, he, no matter what state he was in, He'd, he'd, do a, he'd do a good take, you know, he'd, he'd get the thing right and he'd change it and it would still be good, you know. Um, but after six o'clock in the evening, I mean, by lunchtime he was drunk, but by six he was a liability. So that's why he never did theatre. 
because theatre goes up at seven. He was a mess, you know. So he, he, that's why he never did it, you know. He, he, he was a very special guy, a very kind, generous man who was frightening to a lot. Of, and he was very homophobic and, um, and very um, chauvinistic. But all that, I think, was a cover, I think, underneath it. You know, he quite liked men, you know, but he was pretty horrific. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. You're welcome. Uh, obviously, I've heard some of that before. Some Come back next week for episode two <laughs> of The Trouble with Holly. <laughs> Thank you again. Oh, before we go, um, do you have any um, public events at your venue coming up? www.houseofmagic.co.uk. <laughs> we have a public show at the end of every month, pretty much. Lovely. Um, we, we don't do August, July and August much because people go away. We've got some private events. But we, we're doing quite a lot of weddings now. So if anyone wants to get married, come and do it in my venue. <laughs> Thank you again. You're welcome. Well, that was uh, incredible. I loved it. Thank you so much for doing that, Dan. That is, uh, yeah, such a, oh. a, a lovely addition. Thank you to Simon. Uh, yeah, just amazing that he's he can share those things. Yeah, thanks, Simon. Simon's my friend too, by the way. I, I, I love him, but um, I, I didn't get those amazing stories. So well done, Dan. Not, <laughs> not jealous at all. Oh, uh, just just to say quickly, uh, I, I I can't think off the top of my head if there are any other Oliver Reed films in the Arrow canon, but uh, but he did say after I turned the mic off. Obviously, I've got a lot more anecdotes. If you want more, the next time you do an Ollie Reed film, uh, just come back and talk to me again, and I'll, I'll give you some more. So there well, you go, it, Arrow. If, get yourself yeah. some more Ollie Reed films in the catalogue. Exactly. If that doesn't make them do it, nothing will. Um, right. Social media, Dan. Where can people follow you? Uh, I'm at 13fingerfx on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, follow me for a, a sporadic bursts of film effects photos on Instagram um, and general uh, political gripery and, uh, and then occasional film stuff on Twitter. Well, uh, I am on Instagram. I'm at samashes23. And if you follow me, you will see that I am occasionally posting pictures from the set of my film and then realising I probably shouldn't be posting them and then instantly archiving them. So if you want um, glimpses at what I'm doing uh, before I, I regret putting them on social media, then uh, by all means, follow me on Instagram. That's set it. Up, set, set up an alert, like a, like a posting alert, so you know immediately and then you can screen grab them and repost them yourself even after Sam has deleted them. Exactly, and you can use it against me, <laughs> just like all things in life. But... Um, Thank you so much for listening and we promise to be more professional next time. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.